1: Lipton green tea is a simple way to up your everyday healthy habits. Green tea contains flavonoids, which are naturally occurring bioactives found in tea, vegetables, and fruit. Just two cups of Lipton green tea can help support health by providing approximately the same amount of flavonoids as eating 20 pounds of cooked broccoli. Available in new signature blend green tea and new lemon, peach, and honey ginger green tea. Try new Lipton green tea today.
0: Actung, and Welcome to. We have ways of making you talk with me, James Holland, and today I am joined once again by Des Curtis. Who we're reconvening because <laughs> there was so much to say, Des, last time about um, about your time as a as a navigator on a mosquito. Well, and and before that, on a bow fighter in the Second World War, that we needed to come back for a second dose. Where, where, where we got to was you were you were training um, for for the operations. Um, against the Tirpitz, and, and wondering how on earth you were ever going to sort of get out of that alive if the operation went ahead. Um, and then we kind of sort of ran out of time. So, at what point did that operation get, did you learn that that operation wasn't going to go ahead?
2: That would, was in uh, the end of August of 1943, when uh, it was quite obvious that uh, the weapon wasn't going to perform properly. Uh, the target was too far away. Uh, and because 617 were now shown to be a more potent force, the emphasis then moved away from the, the highball bouncing bomb towards the heavier weapon to comp- have to be dropped from a greater height than, than we were going to operate. So, and, uh, I think you- many people were relieved at at a high level, yep. that they wouldn't be responsible for the loss of a squadron of aircraft if, had they gone ahead with that uh, attack. Can
0: you remember when, can you, I mean, was was there a day where you were suddenly sort of called in and told, okay, this is going to be, it's it's all off? I mean, how we how were you informed that it wouldn't be going ahead?
2: Simply, they said, for the time being, uh, the squadron going to be disbanded because further research is needed on the weapon itself uh, and its performance. So the squadron is going to be disbanded, disbanded, uh, and then, when necessary, it will be reformed. In the meantime, you'll be posted away to other units.
0: Could you remember your reaction to that? I mean, but we—you we must have been pretty relieved,
2: weren't you? <laughs> no, of course, total relief. Yeah. Apart from the the uh, relief that we're going to survive for another day, just <laughs> getting away from being cooped up from April until August uh, in almost total isolation was starting to take its toll. Yeah, I'm sure. So, any excuse to do anything different, get away from that place.
0: <laughs> so, so where were you posted to?
2: I was posted to RAF Benson to 540 PRU Squadron.
0: And were you happy about that? Was that all right? I mean, did you have any choice in the matter, or was it just... I
2: don't have a choice. We volunteered to do that. This is where you're going. Right. No, going to Benson was quite interesting, because we had never been up to these astronomical heights of 25,000 feet and above. Right. And when we went there, we were told that we were going to pick up a relatively new... PIU aircraft and do a line overlap right down the Italian coast, a line overlap photography, right down the Italian west coast uh, and then fly on to Egypt where we would hand over the aircraft and work our way back to England. A very attractive proposition, going to Egypt for a a little while and then taking a time to come back to England. It all seemed quite attractive. And we saw this lovely, highly polished blue mosquito sitting there. And that's the aircraft that you're going to fly. Right. So we took it up to 32,000 feet and flew out across to Bristol and out onto the Irish Sea. They didn't tell us that at about 22,000 feet there would be a monumental bang because the superchargers came in. But we, did, we didn't have pilots' notes or anything. But
0: Did you not? That's amazing.
2: On our way back, we came down through cloud to come back to Benson and did a spiral, spiral uh, descent through cloud. And unknown to us, a flying fortress formation was going out on a daylight raid. And As we came through cloud, we saw these fortresses on either side of us as we spiraled through, which is a rather frightening sight. <laughs> <laughs> However, and then we went on leave, had some jabs, came back and said, you shouldn't be here. You should be in Predannock. Where's Predannock? Down in Cornwall. Oh, yeah. As it happened, there was an aircraft coming in from Shawbury down to Benson uh, on some, I don't know why it was there, on Oxford. And uh, we said, can you give us a lift down to or wherever that is? So we upstaked and went to Predannock. Well, it must be quite nice being in Cornwall, wasn't it? Delightful, in a hotel on the cliff edge. Oh, really? Amazing. And the beaches were still accessible at that time. Were they? In that part of the world, unlike the East Coast, where the the beaches were closed off. So, That was our start of 618 Special Detachment.
0: 618 Special Detachment.
2: Yes. Wow. And so, did that, so when did 618, did it reconvene as a squadron? Not as a squadron. 618 reconvened at Beckles mm. in Norfolk because by that time they had just, the Air Ministry had decided that the squadron should move out to Australia. Right. Uh, and to then take part in the attacks oh, on yes. Japan. And they, fortunately, we weren't recruited because we were operational by then, but the rest of the squadron were brought back in and uh, taught to fly as if they were flying off aircraft carriers. Uh, Beckles was runway was marked off aircraft carrier deck length, and they practiced deck landings there in preparation for uh, heading out to Australia on uh, two aircraft carriers.
0: So did you? So did you remain as the six one eight detachment? Was that that remained your name?
2: No, we we stayed as six one eight special detachment. Yeah, uh, with a under the administrative uh, rule of two four eight squadron because we were only four four crews, cross oh, uh, ground crew, and then later on, once the secrecy of the weapon became less important, we were then merged into 248 squadron and became sea flight of 248 squadron got you they were then uh by then had re-equipped from bow fighters to mark six mosquitoes right
0: right 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 and what did you make of the um of the of the pru mosquito
2: beautiful aircraft yeah Uh, it was a a highly polished version, so it looked almost stately. <laughs> and course, was it armed? Presumably not, if it was PRU. Sorry? And presumably unarmed, if it was unarmed. PRU. Unarmed, oh yes, yes. Goodness me. Unarmed, just full of cameras, that was all. So presumably this is,
0: by this time, this is about September 1943, something like that, is it? Yes, yeah. yes. Plan your trip to Italy and, and Egypt and, and come back again.
2: And and so so how long are you there at Bradninch? We went to Bradninch in uh, September '43, and we moved across to Portree, the other side of Cornwall. Mm-hmm. I suppose about three months later.
0: Right. Yeah, Portree is a it's a it's a, a nice part of the world to be, isn't it?
2: Both, well, both were very pleasant.
0: And so, were you able to? You were able to get out and enjoy the the, the Cornish.
2: You know, coastline and beaches and bars and whatnot. The Pelurian Hotel, which was the officers' mess, was a lovely four-star hotel, and uh, we had large bedrooms with three or f- three or four of us per bedroom. Right. Uh, we had our the cliff paths were open, and uh, for example, uh, in December when we had the Christmas event. Uh, the officers, of course, had to wait on the airmen for the Christmas lunch, which we did. Yes. And we had a few jugs before we set off to do that pleasant task. Yeah. And then I remember that after coming back to the mess, I made my way down to the beach down below, stretched out on the beach on Christmas Day, and fell asleep. <laughs> did you really? Fighting a hard war.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I, I felt, I, having heard what you've done up to that point, I think you probably earned that, that, that one day of relaxation, to be honest, Des. So how often would you be flying in a typical week? Did it just depend? Or, or I mean, you wouldn't be flying every single day, would you?
2: No, there was no pattern of flying at all, because partly we were waiting until targets were identified. Right. Which wasn't a daily occurrence. Uh, we were very weather susceptible. Mm-hmm. Um, we we could take off in night time, but we had no night flying fighter capability because of the flash from the gun. Uh, so the gun really only was use usable during daylight hours. Oh, yeah. So that limited the number of hours of the day that we could operate. So there were times when we would go for maybe two weeks without any operational flying. Right. And because we had fewer aircraft, uh, sometimes we only had two aircraft available to us, uh, we would sometimes use one of the Mark Six aircraft mm-hmm. to get some practice in, to get some flying practice in, uh, just to keep our skills up. highly polished, yes.
0: Presumably, um, a portreef You're with with two four eight squadron. You're back with Coastal Command. Is that correct?
2: Right the way through. Yes.
0: Yeah. And and so what most of the work you're doing. I mean, obviously, you're no longer going down the Italian coast taking photographs. Is it is it anti-submarine work that, that's that your primary role?
2: Yes. Yeah. Initially, we were when we first acquired the Mark eighteen, mm-hmm. we were engaged solely in attacking U-boats close into their, their pens. Right. Uh, we, once the weapon became quite obvious to the Germans that there was a different type of weapon that was neither a bomb nor a machine gun, um, then the uh, need for security diminished a bit and we were then allowed to attack surface craft as well as uh, U-boats. Mm. Which extended our capability and our, our success rate enormously, of course. Yeah. So were most of your
0: operations out over kind of sort of northern towards northern France, the Bay of Biscay, that kind of thing?
2: Entirely Bay of Biscay in, initially, right. While the until France was uh, cleared for the Germans, then we moved back up from there, back up to Scotland again to continue our work against uh, the Norwegian coast. OK. So, so does you when you were first down in
0: Cornwall, you were on the, on the Mark 6s. When did the Mark 18s come in?
2: Well, we started only with the Mark 18. Mark 6s were uh, going to 248 Squadron. Right. And 248 Squadron provided the fighter escorts that we needed. Got you. Uh, your We've completed two operations then we realized that we needed to have fighter escorts, which were provided by 248, usually four aircraft. uh, But then as the Germans became more aware of what was going on, we needed six aircraft to accompany us to to attack the surface vessels that were accompanying the U-boats.
0: Right. So you were doing the, the, just so I'm absolutely clear on this, so you were doing the photographic work. But but the escort were doing the shooting up if necessary. No no,
2: no, no, correction. We weren't doing photographic work. That, cool. that finished when I left Benson. Got you. The ph- photographic work was a handheld camera. Right. That I could hold for a few seconds. And I did manage to get one picture that you when we were attacked U nine nine seven six.
0: Right. So you're 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 attacking aircraft and the and then the escort is there so that you can concentrate on doing the attacking of of vessels, whether they be U-boats or whether they be surface vessels, and the escort behind you are sort of watching your back. Is that is that how it worked?
2: Their, their job was to attack the minesweepers and destroyers that were out in the mineswept channels of the Bay of Biscay, their job to, to escort the U-boats in and out of uh, harbour U-boat pens. Right. Because there was a narrow... A series of channels that were mineswept by the Germans, um, through which the U-boats had to pass. Right. Um, so the our escorts then were tasked to douse the flak of the minesweepers and the destroyers. Got you. Later on, uh, to to fight with the Ju 88s that were given fighter cover by the Germans. Right. As as the defences became stronger. Uh, included. They included uh, a ship called a Spurbreaker, which was a merchant ship with the decks cleared completely, and they were equipped solely with anti-aircraft guns, so they became a floating anti-aircraft battery. Uh, they were added then to the, the defenses, which made a formidable range of defenses go against our two aircraft and six escorts.
0: So your your task is to concentrate on the U-boat while the escort concentrate on, on, on everything else? Yeah,
2: protecting us. Yeah.
0: We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly. See you in a moment.
1: Lipton Green Tea is a simple way to up your everyday healthy habits. Green tea contains flavonoids, which are naturally occurring bioactives found in tea, vegetables and fruits. Just two cups of Lipton green tea can help support health by providing approximately the same amount of flavonoids as eating 20 pounds of cooked broccoli. Available in new Signature Blend green tea and new Lemon, Peach, and Honey ginger green tea. Try new Lipton green tea today.
0: Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, and the Mark 18. I mean, th- I mean that sounds absolutely fearsome. I mean, it, it's you know with with that 57 mm cannon and machine guns and all the rest, them, four, four machine guns. I think is that right? Initially,
2: initially four,
0: yeah. and we cut it back to two. Right, but that cannon Des, I mean, that's that that's quite a thing, isn't it?
2: It's a massive piece of airborne artillery. 12 and a half foot long,
0: yeah.
2: tucked away on, on off, offset from the centre line of the fuselage, offset slightly to starboard, right. to make room for the cartridge shell, which was uh, some 20 or inches long, to fall out of the aircraft safely without damaging the tailplane. Right. And know, uh, we had armour-plated engines. Each engine was armor-plated, and the underside of our cockpit was armor-plated. So we were a, an unusually heavy version of a Mosquito. And the, there was enough space. When they fitted the gun, uh, there was enough space at the, at the breech of the gun between there and the next bulkhead to squeeze in another small tank. So we had another reserve tank in addition to the wing tanks. We had wing tanks permanently fitted onto the aircraft, so we were a, a heavyweight mosquito, much heavier than Mark Six. And presumably, that has
0: an impact on how 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 it flies. You know, it's it's, it's maneuverability, its speed, and all sorts of
2: things. Well, they had to install a Mark Twenty Five uh, Merlin engine, which was a more powerful engine. Yep, uh, and. There was a speed limitation, really, because with that all-up weight, the recommended uh, flying rate was 280 miles an hour, which was slightly lower than we would normally expect for a a Mark VI aircraft. Sure. So it was a a, a heavily defended aircraft in in that sense of being armour-plated. Yeah. I sat, in fact, i sat on an armour-plated sheet steel was my, was my chair. Right. But you, I mean, did you, uh, we, what, what, what
0: did you make of it? I mean, were you a bit daunted that suddenly, you know, you have having gone and having been, been operating in, a, in an incredibly quick and, and highly manoeuvrable and lightweight aircraft version of the Mosquito, suddenly you've got this kind of heavier, slightly more cumbersome beast that you're, uh, you're controlling?
2: Well, you had to get used to this uh, firing of this gun, which which was quite a, an unusual activity. Yes. The noise and the jolting of the aircraft it was something to be believed because yeah. uh, you had the, the noise of the gun firing, then you had the, the the noise of the breech opening and another round being put inserted into the breech, and the breech block closing before the second round was fired. So during that was, stage was taking place. There was a very noisy aircraft, and of course, once the, when the gun was fired, uh, the flame, the flame from the gun was measured. We had a photographic Union aircraft flew alongside us at on one occasion while we fired the gun, and they measured. The flame at a hundred and twenty-three foot <laughs> flame good. came from the muzzle of the gun below us. So we were flying into our own flame. Oh good. The, the aircraft, in fact, came to a standstill for a microsecond because the recoil on that gun was was uh, really quite something—about nine thousand six hundred pounds—and the buffer, the buffer that uh, took the recoil had to be cleaned every day, every day whether the aircraft was in use or not because that was an important part. If that recoil was not operating satisfactory, the gun wouldn't work. And so when you you were first equipped with
0: these, I mean, how much sort of training did you have before you went on your first operations? Or or was it just sort of get in and off you go and work it out yourself?
2: About 40 minutes. It's just amazing, isn't it? Take it out over the sea. Make sure that there were no ships around, and say, "Let's see what happens. Press yeah. the tip and see what happens."
0: Wow! I mean, I, I just, I, I, just can't really imagine what it must have been like being in a mosquito firing a gun of that size on a, you know, a largely wooden plane. I mean, even one that's got armour plate. It's, it just seems. That's just not what the plane is designed to do, and yet, and yet, incredibly, because of its extraordinary versatility, John, it it seemed to work.
2: James, it came to a matter of faith. Yeah, we had total faith in the viability of the aircraft. The aircraft was strong. Yeah, we knew it was strong, we knew it was up to the task. When you had that much confidence in the aircraft, then you're Forward thinking became much more uh, concentrated because you didn't have to worry as to whether the aircraft would let you down in any way. Of
0: all the sort of sorties you're going on, how often are you actually able to kind of pick up a U boat and attack it? Uh,
2: very infrequently because the intelligence that they of uh, signals intercepted by U boat's arrival at the out seaward side of the Mindscope Channel, the intelligence then uh, fairly meagre. You had to pick up that signal, um, and having we got that information, then we had to make sure that we were at the very point because if you weren't, if we weren't at the point of seaward point where the U boat was starting its run on the surface. Thus, 30 miles into, into the U-boat pen. If we were two miles away, we as well be 20 mile, 25 miles away because right. we would have been detected and the U-boat then all it had to do was, if it couldn't meet up with its uh, surface vessels, was submerged for the time being until we disappeared again. Sure. So navigational ac- accuracy was very important from that point of view. So you're flying for one and a half, two hours over the sea out of sight of land at yep. low level uh, to hit within a half a mile of uh, uh, a stated position.
0: Yeah.
2: And when you say, say
0: uh, low level, how low level?
2: Well, and finally, when you were, for example, going around Ushant, which is the most westerly point of the Bay of Biscay. Uh, they had a Germans had a radar station there so we'd come down to about thirty feet if we had to stay close in uh, because the further west we were out into the Atlantic the, we were wasting time right because we had to, once we'd come down from Cornwall due south we'd then have to turn uh, towards the Bay, the Bay of Biscay the French coast so we turn left after ushant so we're down to about 30 feet there. Crikey. Crikey. Very exhilarating because the sea passed by very quickly.
0: <laughs> you can well imagine. I mean, I just... It, it's, it's amazing to think what, what you were doing,
2: really. Once we realised ahead, you saw some ships on the horizon. Right. You lifted up, make sure that what you'd seen was real. Yeah. And if... Then, as happened, say, on when we attacked on the 25th of March, take that as an example, um, we saw the outline of some ships on the horizon pull up to 500 feet, Right. realized that there was a U-boat there. So the two of us, Tetsi aircraft, we would then pull away from our formation. We'd climb up into the sun to attack from out of the sun. Time up to about 1500 or 1600 feet. Right. While the fighter escorts then flew straight down onto the target area and they would start opening fire while we were repositioning 1600 feet above. Right. And so we'd have to be aware that we had our own aircraft somewhere below us. What would then happen? Is that we would then turn uh, towards the target, yes. And the minute the target, the U-boat disappeared out of sight below our nose, put the, no- the aircraft into a thirty-degree dive,
0: mm-hmm.
2: open up the throttles to, to almost full speed, and point the point the aircraft at your ta- aiming point. And the aiming point was not at the U-boat; it was. In the, in the sea, to one side of the U-boat. Right. So, and in the flight between the 16, 1500, 1,600 feet down to a safe breakaway point, which would be maybe 300 feet, uh, accelerating up to nearly 400 miles an hour by then. Goodness. You get five shots in, if you were lucky, uh, before you had to break away. And why we aimed at the sea and not at the U-boat was we would attack at a slight angle, not not directly at 90 degrees, but a slight angle. And as the solid shell hit the water, the water pressure would cause the shell to change its direction into a curve. The upward pressure would cause the shell to run parallel to the sea at a level that would penetrate the ballast tanks of the U-boat. If it penetrated the ballast tanks, it would then penetrate the hull of the U-boat, which is the ballast tanks on the outside, the hull on the inside, going into there, still going with full velocity, solid steel shell, and it would then ricochet within the U-boat, particularly if it had hit an engine block, it would ricochet and spin and if it had enough momentum, it would then possibly find its way out of the U boat, making a second hole. And again, staying with U 976 as an example, um, we managed to get five shots off at Hilly Hilliard, who was flying immediately behind us. He also managed to get four shots at it. And when we saw the wreck of the U boat, the film of the wreck of the U-boat later, there were holes in a vertical line and they sufficiently large in themselves to cause the U-boat to break its back as it sank down to the bottom of the sea. And that was how a U-boat was, was effectively destroyed. Uh, if you couldn't destroy it, if you only took the, the conning tower out of action... Yeah. U-boat had to then find its way back to U-boat, and it would be out of action for maybe two or three months at least. As happened Uh, on the seventh of of June, for example, two days after the invasion started, we were flying towards Cherbourg, uh, and two of us, without any fighter escort, Hmm. and a U-boat surfaced immediately below us. Extraordinarily. And we watched as a German sailor opened the hatch, climbed, and we by then turned around and started attack. We managed to put enough damage to cause that U boat to crawl to L'Oreal. Right. Uh, it was out of action from June until September.
0: Presumably there's so much going on, so much to think about at that time. The the the, I mean, are you able to kind of sort of focus your your thoughts and concentration on the job in hand, or are you thinking, "Crikey, this is this is a little bit hairy here"?
2: No, your your thoughts were first of all on the on the target. That's the pilot's job. Uh, the, The pilot was the only one who had any control over that. My job then was to make sure I was looking around all the time at any other of our aircraft. That we might be putting in danger because of the way we were flying. So mm-hmm. I had to be alert to all of that. Yeah. Uh, and that concentrated the mind completely. There's no other thought in your mind as to get that attack completed as best you're able. Right. Watching your back end, because if you had JU 88s coming at you, you also had to watch, watch out for them. Yeah, sure. Um, it was a period of just intense concentration, yeah. And then once you the attack was complete, then you start breathing normally again and make your homework. We had an, an amusing incident at the first, we went out on one occasion late evening, and by the time we would completed our, our trip down into the bay, it was dark so. I decided as navigator that we'd take a shortcut home. Uh, and Instead of flying right round us, and we would cross over the, 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 the mainland over and come out on the other side of Brest. And that would cut off quite a bit of our journey. So we were flying along in the dark, and suddenly we saw the nav lights of an aircraft ahead of us, realized that that was an aircraft that was heading towards an airfield. Um, and Unthinking, <laughs> my pilot decided that we'd have a go at this. So we got up behind it. We had, of course, had our nav lights off, so we we were unknown in the dark. And we got up behind this uh, whatever whatever aircraft it was, because we had no idea. We just saw the lights of it. And Doug fired one round, and of course the flash from that blinded him. <laughs> oh, God. So for about twenty seconds, we were really true flying blind. Oh my goodness! Uh, so we decided on the on the way back. Once he got his sight back again, we decided that we wouldn't make any reference to that in our report because <laughs> <laughs> it did not look too good on our on our performance chart.
0: Wow. Uh, but well, you managed to get back safely, obviously. So, sure, yes, yeah. So, with the U, um, the U nine seven six, this attack on the twenty fifth of March, nineteen forty four. I mean, did you, did you have any any concept at all that you had hit it and, and destroyed it?
2: Well, we we thought we'd had a pretty good chance of that because we had seen uh, brown oil coming out onto, which was obviously diesel coming out onto the surface. The U boat had stopped completely, it was totally inert in the water. um, And we'd started to see some of the crew climbing out onto the, through the conning tower. So we'd say, well, he's not going anywhere. And we learned a few days later that, in fact, uh, it had, had in fact, sunk.
0: Wow. Because you got to know the captain, didn't you, after the war?
2: Yes, yeah. I mean, how did that come about? Uh, it came about because another navigator from another squadron had found out that in Cuxhaven, there was a German archivist who kept some very detailed records of German U-boat uh, cruise and, uh, activities. And this chap got in touch with the archivist who was quite willing to give us any information within sensible limits. So I wrote to this archivist and said, uh, did he know anything about the captain and crew of U-976? And he wrote back and said, yes, the captain is uh, Captain Raymond Teasler, Commandant Raymond Teasler, uh, who is a personal friend. If you wish to get in touch with him, you must send an open letter through me so that he could satisfy himself that I wasn't being insulting or in any way offensive. And if that was the case, the letter was okay, he would make sure it got to Raymond Tiesler, which happened. And I, it took me a month to write a letter because I don't speak any German. I could order a beer but nothing else in German. Uh, and you can't start off saying, years ago, I tried to kill you. And, no,
0: no, no.
2: You can't write that letter. So I wrote the letter, it was delivered to him, and weeks later I got a reply, uh, apologizing it had taken so long to reply because he'd been in hospital without his hips. Both hips had had to be removed and replaced simultaneously because he'd been very badly injured uh, during a a bombing raid in Nantes. Uh, Some time before it all caught up with him, and but eventually my wife and I went out to Hradec uh, in the on the Ruhr where he lived. We corresponded and realised that correspondence was healthy. Um, went there summer's afternoon. I wondered what we were going to find. Couldn't find the front entrance to the house that he lived in because it didn't have a front entrance. It was around the back in the garden. So my wife said, well, you go on in. I'll, I'm not going to go in with you because I, I don't know what's going to happen here. And there was this chap sitting in the garden. Uh, so I called out, I'm looking for her, Raymond Teesler, And the voice says, it is I. And I went forward and he stood up and we threw our arms around each other.
0: How amazing.
2: Unrehearsed, we just took one look, and I can still remember it very clearly. When we finished hugging, he pulled back and he said, in perfectly good English, I like what I see. Oh. His wife had been standing at the window watching this because she wondered how these two fellows would get on. And that began the beginning of a very good, but sadly short, friendship with him the point that he, he and his family came to visit us, stay with us in uh, Wimborne in Dorset. Uh, we, we invited them over to the Mosquito Museum. We had celebration events there. When I published my book, they came over for that because I gave the proceeds of the sale of the first edition of my book. I gave all that to the RA Benevolent Fund. So we had Roger Palin, Air Chief Marshal Palin, came up to receive the money. He met the German crews. John Cunningham met the German crews. They were all invited over there. Oh, wonderful! And we made good friends out of them. There was only one of the officers that uh, was a pretty offensive character. He couldn't get over the fact that he was German, and they were once a mighty nation. But Raymond Teasler couldn't even abide him. He had to. Live with him but he's just I, I don't like him that, I don't like that man but the rest of them were fine
0: well it's its, it's amazing isn't it and um, that, that's such an incredibly kind of heartwarming and uplifting story Des thank you so much for, for talking to us today and last time thank you very much um, and for everyone else thank you for listening cheerio